Well, it's rather fitting that we should have the London Sinfonietta here for this discovering music on the music of Sir Harrison Bertwistle because they have championed Bertwistle's music for most of his career, it's particularly since the premiere of Verses for Ensemble in 1969. They also, the first piece we're going to hear today, Cortege for 14 Instruments, was written for them and dedicated to the memory of the Sinfonietta's artistic director, the hugely influential Michael Viner, who died 20 years later in 1989. A Cortege itself is based on an earlier piece called Ritual Fragment that was written in 1990. We'll hear from the composer about why the revision in a little while. It's quite short, it lasts slightly less than a quarter of an hour, but it's an excellent introduction to the kind of musical landscape that Harrison Bertwistle creates. Now, what will happen first is I'll sketch a short outline for you, and then we'll hear a complete performance, and then I'll bring in the composer, and we can hear what the music's really about. But two elements that are key to Bertwistle's music that turn up again and again are actually hinted at in the original title of the piece, Ritual Fragment. Drama and ritual are crucial elements in Bertwistle's music over and over again. What's interesting is that we are invited in a way to become slightly more participant in this experience as spectators as well as listeners. Because it often seems to me that sometimes watching performances by orchestras, they could be a lot more theatrical than they are. You see old films of the Berlin Philharmonic playing under Furtwängler, and you can see almost people are performing physically to the audience. And I'm sure that heightens the sense of enjoyment, certainly for a lot of audiences. They certainly prefer demonstrative-looking conductors. But in this piece, the spectacle of the performance, where the performers are, where the soloists are, and how they relate to each other, is one of the things that's particularly important. And it'll be clear, I'm sure, to those of you who are here in Albra, but for the listeners on the radio as well, our producer is going to great lengths to make sure that the kind of soundscape you hear is clear when it comes to explaining where people are in relation to each other on the stage. Another elements that are very important in Bertwistle's music, it seems to me, are the bringing together of the very new and the very, very old in a kind of unique way. And here is an example, a classic example, I think, in Cortege, because behind the idea of the piece, as the title suggests, is a very slow processional, a funereal procession, a procession of mourning, perhaps, as the dedication to the memory of Michael Viner suggests. And these memorial funeral processions are, anthropologically speaking, some of the oldest things in human history. You might even say they've become almost archetypal. And in cortege, this idea of the funeral procession, it's not a steady beat that goes through the way in, say, a normal funeral march. But we're reminded of it all the time by two particular kinds of sound. First, the first thing we hear almost is an unmistakably funeral sound. It's this characteristic rhythm on a very deep bass drum. Now, that's immediately a recognisable type, isn't it? Composers have returned to that kind of writing over and over again. In fact, there's a very similar sound in the opening movement, the funeral march of Mahler's Symphony No. 5. But there's also another element that, as it were, keeps the cortege moving just about, and that's a sort of dotted rhythm in reverse, a da-dum rhythm on broken chords on the piano, sometimes singly, sometimes repeated. That sounds like this. Thank you. 
And as I said, those two ideas return sporadically, intermittently, from time to time, but throughout Cortege, just enough to maintain that sense of a very slow movement, even if it's somewhere going on in the background. However active the music may seem to be on the surface, in the foreground, and particularly that's true when it comes to the solo parts in this piece. We're not just talking about concertante soloists here, a group of soloists with a small orchestra in the background, as say, for instance, in a Baroque concerto grosso, like one of the Bach Brandenburg concertos. For a start, almost everybody gets their chance in the solo spotlight. You'll see during the performance they walk to the front of the stage. There are very clear instructions in the score about where to walk and where to walk to. Of course, though, this means only that the portable instruments can take part. The bassoon just about makes it. The cello, the double bass, the piano and the bass drum, for rather obvious reasons, don't. We've also a rather interesting newcomer to the orchestra. I have an instrument I haven't seen very often just here, which is a bass trumpet. One of the reasons it's here is because it's practical from the point of view that it's portable. Uh, it's got a very similar range to the trombone, but it's much easier to carry one of these around. Now, sometimes the soloists in this piece are very much soloists. They're on their own, as it were, playing quite separately from the ensemble. They seem to be doing their thing while the ensemble busies away in the background with something else. Right at the beginning, for instance, we have a solo for the trumpet. Just after the first sounds, we hear the bass drum beat and those chords on the piano. I can imagine the trumpet like a kind of ritual master of ceremonies, calling everybody to attention. The ceremony begins, while the other instruments in the background are like spectators who maybe cough and shuffle and whisper a little bit at first, then gradually quieten down and finally give the trumpet their full attention. It sounds like this. At other times, the soloist seems to lead or to even galvanize the ensemble into activity. And that's, for example, true of this passage a little later on, about halfway through the piece, where the oboe plays very active music, and this seems to rouse the orchestra to some sort of activity in the background. see that slow funereal movement, then the oboe much more active, everybody else seems to become much more active with him, and then the bass drum's funeral march, and we're back to the idea of the slow processional again. The soloists can also react very strongly with solo voices that are still in the ensemble. It's not just a question of soloists and background orchestra. There's a lot of toing and froing going on musically between the players as well. There's a very striking example near the end. The flute, 
is at the front, and he leads, but he's directed to turn to each of the members of the ensemble who've already been in the solo spot, the violin, the viola, the oboe, the clarinet, and so on. And each responds to what the flute plays, as you'll hear, each in a particular and kind of characteristic way. Yet still in the background, you can hear the bass drum and the piano maintaining that very slow processional movement. So there are two kind of things going on here, this drama at the front of the stage and this very slow processional movement at the back. virtually the end of the piece, apart from the kind of wrapping up and bringing back to the funeral processional element at the end. At the same time, there's another kind of exchange going on, which is what happens when you get two soloists on the stage at the same time, a kind of handover that's going on, like you sometimes get in jazz music, but with a very different kind of effect. For instance, when the second violin hands over to the clarinet, it's almost like handing over a baton in a relay race. You can hear, musically this happens, the violin plunges down the scale, and then the clarinet starts on the violin's last note and hurtles back up again, but in a slightly different way. It's as though the clarinet is establishing his personality on the music almost immediately and taking off in his own direction. Anyway, a mirror image, but not quite. All of these characters, as it were, are like different personalities within the ritual, where they have different roles to perform. And it's very much decided by the sound and the capabilities of their instruments. But sometimes what happens when one instrument takes over from another, as you hear, is much more dramatic. It can even be like a kind of flat contradiction or rejection. As, for instance, quite near the start of the piece, when the bassoon takes over from the first violin. The violin rises to a very, very high note, quite stratospherically high, and the bassoon thunders in on his bottom note, a B-flat, FFF, fortissimo. It's one of the rudest noises, I think, in the orchestra. This is a very different kind of handover, you might say, from the one with that beautifully, as it were, delicate and decorous one that we just heard between the violin and the clarinet. Thank <laughs> you. 
So, those are a few basic landmarks, as it were, in Courtage. A few signposts for you if you're coming to the music for the first time. I hope they help you find your bearings. But it's time now to hear how it all works out in performance. So here is a complete performance of Harrison Birtwistle's Courtage, played for us today by the members of the London Sinfonietta. And now it's time to bring on the composer himself. Would you welcome, please, Sir Harrison Bertwistle? Now, one of the things that intrigues me about that piece, apart from that extraordinary atmosphere it seems to generate, one of those Bertwistle pieces that can leave a presence in the room for a long time afterwards, so much so that in some concerts it's almost a shame to hear anything else afterwards. Um, the ending of Cortege, Harry, there's that coming together, apart from the piano and the bass drum, everyone on one note, I think it's a repeated D at the end, isn't it, something like that. That's one of the very striking ways in which Cortege is rather different from the work it's based on, Ritual Fragment. Now, I remember hearing the first performance of Ritual Fragment and thinking this is a very powerful short piece of music indeed. Why did you feel the need to rework it, as it were, or turn it into something else? Well, he died. Mm. Michael Viner, and I didn't have time to do anything. And I thought that he deserved something more than just an occasional piece. And um, I was writing an opera at the time, and uh, one thing I can't do is to write more than one thing at once. But I decided, therefore, that I would have a go, and it's the only time I've ever done it. I set half past four every day. I would take a rest from my opera and spend an hour writing a piece. And then I knew that in two weeks' time, I would have spent 14 hours. And that's when the piece had to be finished. So I began, and I wrote the solos first. And um, the idea was that I felt that it was like each member of the group taking a flower and putting it on his coffin. That was the sort of metaphor of the piece, but instead of a flower, a piece of music, um, which in some respects I tried to make it reflect the personalities of the people. No offence, you people out there. So that was the notion, that was, that was the concept of the piece, and that's what I did. And the rest sort of falls into place. I think one very important thing, which is very dear to me, is that the idea of something like a bass drum at the front there is not just a nice idea. It's not like a cosmetic idea. It is actual something that functions within the piece and helps the players know where they are within it. It's like a signpost. And it also tells you where the downbeat is because this, the whole nature of music is what the conductor does. He does... In order to bring an orchestra in, he, he does an upbeat and a downbeat. So that's exactly what the bass drum it plays, dug-a-dum, you see. So the dugga is the upbeat and the bomb is the down. So you, you know where you are. I should say for the benefit of radio listeners that we don't have a conductor. No, that, and that was one of the ideas of the piece, that it shouldn't have a conductor. Mm. And I remember saying to uh, Michael at one point that conductors are overestimated. And I said to one conductor, what's he called the one he used to do? Simon Rattle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I said, you know, that it w I could write a piece without a conductor for a big group of players, for a sort of composite virtuosity. And in fact, he played it, did Simon. He played the bass drum part because he was a percussionist. And the idea of the sort of thread of material which logically doesn't have a beginning and a middle and an end. It's like life itself, you know? It, there's no logical reason apart that we run out of breath or something. Uh, and so that the idea of this sort of perpetual permanent melody is something that I've explored and I explore to a, a much greater degree in the next piece that you're going to hear. There's one little sound I'd like to pick out first because it, it seems to be one sound that's been very typical. It immediately suggests Bertwistle to me. And I'd just like to ask you the kind of question I know people often like putting to composers. First of all, could the piano just play example two again, those kind of dotted rhythm chords? Now, to me, that's a very Harrison Bertwistle sound. It immediately says well, you. Well, you know more about me than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested, when you arrive at harmonies like that cause that the piano is playing, are they determined by some sort of system, or do you trust your ear? Do you find your harmonies, for instance, at the keyboard, as Stravinsky did? A bit of both. At one time in my life, I wrote music in a different way, or tried to write music in a different way, which was based on serialism. And via serialism, I could never make the chords that I had in my head. And also, I could always make better chords or chords that I felt that I wanted to use in the way that Stravinsky does. But, but then, the exciting thing for that, what I discovered, that I could then subject that harmony to inspection, to analysis, and then I could proliferate that material so that whatever the acoustic properties of the chord are, I could devise ways of making thousands of them. Mm. Yeah. So, it's a so bit, there is yeah. like a sort of unity about it, but could only have been done within the background of serialism. You'd never do that through tonality. This idea of cortèges processionals, the ritual element in your music, something that does seem to recur a lot. It seems to go right back almost to the beginning of your career, I think. Is, is this a conscious choice, or is it just something that you feel you've been led to, as it were? Well, it, it comes back to the thing about the bass drum at the beginning, that it's not simply a nice cosmetic idea, mm. and it's not a nice cosmetic idea to have them moving backwards and forwards. It is actually what the piece is about, and it describes the piece, and it makes the piece in a way more like itself, because I'm sure you can appreciate if we just sat down and played this piece and not moved about, it would not be the same. It defines a sort of clarity, certainly does for me, as well as having this bonus of something which is, in a sense, ritualized. More so in the next piece you're going to hear. I mean, the idea of the ritual and the idea of secret, I like to say that it's like people playing a game, that you, you know there's something highly structured going on, something very meant, 
I mean, a bit like Americans watching cricket. You know, that it, it seems absolutely earnest and true and, and determined and necessary, but you don't know what's happening. You don't, <laughs> you don't know what the clue. I, I and, love what George Bernard Shaw said about cricket, that it was invented to give the English a sense of eternity. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. that's quite good. <laughs> so, you know, so the idea that people say to me, what's the secret in the secret theatre? Well, if I told you, it wouldn't be a secret theatre, would it? <laughs> Still, you have a few secrets, I think, you're going to reveal to us in a moment or two. Well, as far as I know, no one's ever been brave or foolhardy enough to try secret theatre without a conductor, and we're certainly not going to today. So may I introduce to you Mr. Elgar Howarth, who is going to be conducting secret theatre for us today. A gentleman with very long associations with Bertelsdorf's music. I think he's been conducting Bertelsdorf's music almost as long as the Sinfonietta have been playing it. So quite impressive and certainly knows his way into this extraordinarily complex music. We certainly do need a conductor because, in many ways, secret theatre is much more intricate than cortege and, of course, it's longer. But there are also some striking similarities. Again, we have the theatrical elements. Again, instruments step forward to take centre stage though not so much now as soloists, but in groups. Sometimes the solo instruments sing together in unison, or nearly in unison. Then you'll find sometimes the notes begin to fly apart or go their own ways, even when the rhythm remains largely homogenous. As, for instance, in this passage, about a third of the way into the piece, the solo group here comprises oboe, clarinet, trumpet, and horn. So there we have a very typical sound, the solo group playing a kind of long, slow-moving or relatively slow-moving melody, while the main group of instruments together are making something much more active, much more repetitive, much more based on rhythmic repetition. And these two groups have names in the score. They're called Cantus, that's the solo group, and the main ensemble is called the Continuum. That's not Cantus Firmus and Continuo, though, is it, Harry? This is, this is something quite different. Essentially, the piece is about a melody and the accompaniment. That's where it started from. And the Continuum is something which is conceived vertically. Mm. And the Cantus is something which is conceived horizontally. 
And in the piece, many times, they are in a permanent state of collision. I didn't make any relationship between the two things. I, they simply go together. But very often, there is a sort of dialogue between, between the two things, not a continuous state of affairs. But generally speaking, that is the concept of the piece. Well, we'll have a look at some examples of, of that kind of dialogue in a moment. But I just wanted to ask you, when you talked about them being in collision, you said in relation to cortege that you compose a lot of the solo parts first and yeah. then, the parts, as it were, the cortege in the background. Was there anything like that, analogous to that, going on in this, or did you conceive them more or less at the same time? These are very difficult questions. First of all, <laughs> uh, it's a long time ago. Hmm. I think if you, you're talking about what I conceived, the other absolute essential thing to understand about the piece is what I call instrumental role-playing. That means the instruments are like characters in a play and they have their own music and so this sort of dialogue between what the cantus does here and what they do there is quite different. And you'll notice that the bassoon has a very particular role within the piece. All this is part of the secret, which I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but you'll notice also that the flute moves at one point back into this group. Also, the trombone has a very special part, and so does the viola. And so while there are solos happening here, they're also within there, they're doing things which only belong to that group of instruments. Well, we've got an example, actually, of how the bassoon plays its own individual role in relation to what's going on in the cantus at one point. Perhaps we could just hear this, this passage. doesn't have any what you call in music bridge passages. It's very much like the symphonist wind instruments of Stravinsky. So in essence it's cubist. Things don't gradually move to some other state. The piece speaks in, as it were, in blocks of material which are juxtaposed. Sometimes the edges are blurred and sometimes they're what you might call composed full stops or punctuation. So that's another way of thinking about the piece. You mentioned earlier about the role of the flute, and we heard in that first example from Secret Theatre, if you probably noticed, that the flute was making a contribution that seemed particularly relevant to what was going on in the cantus part to the left of the stage. There is a rather nice passage where the flute, as it were, goes away from the cantus and makes comments of its own, this rather lovely, poignant, three-note lamenting figure, and then rejoins 
the, the group again. You hear the flute comes to an end on, on a note, an F, and stops. And the Countess rather magically picks up on the last note of the flute's phrase. And then the flute rejoins Countess and inaugurates something quite different, a kind of wild, jerky dance. <laughs> Sometimes it's very cruel, actually, stopping at the music at particular points. We're just getting the momentum going, and we have to stop for reasons of economy in the programme. That's an indication of just how much momentum, I think, there is in these ideas that you really do feel there's a kind of jar going on when that happens. Interestingly enough, in the score are printed some lines from a poem by Robert Graves with the title, interestingly enough, Secret Theatre. And the flute's role is rather starred in this poem. I'll, I'll read you some of the lines as they are in the score. It is hours past midnight now. A flute signals far off. We mount the stage as though at random, boldly ring down the curtain, then dance out our love. And the first verse tells us more about the character of this sacred theatre, this kind of theatre of the mind. When from your sleepy mind the day's burden falls like a bushel sack on a barn floor. I love that image, I think it's wonderful. Be prepared for music, for natural mirages, and for night's incomparable parade of colour. Now, when I read that, I thought, oh, I see, so Secret Theatre was written in response to Robert Graves' poem, was it? But I understand from what I've read, actually, that you didn't simply sit down with Graves' poem and think, I'll write a piece on this theme. Actually, it was rather later discovery, is that right? Well, the piece was originally called Mystery Play. Oh. And I came across this in the process of writing it. And it seemed to be similar sort of thing and also it was interesting that the thing of the flute being mentioned because I'd already written the piece and it was as if I was reacting to the poem. Mm, yeah. Absolutely because when you, we'll hear the opening later on a little example and it does sound as though this is the flute summoning us to see the play exactly as in the description in the poem and yet that came first before you yeah. actually read the graves. Yeah. Yes it did. How very interesting. 
I love that thing about night's incomparable parade of colour, images and music almost like flowing into one another, as, as it were, in, in dreams. Even though you've talked about this sectional quality, it does seem to me almost as though there's a kind of logic like the kind of the way images do follow one another and blur into one another in dreams. There are a couple of examples I've chosen, and then you can tell me whether you think that makes sense to you. But the first one is a particularly beautiful passage. I'd love to play it to you just because I think it's so gorgeous. There's a moment of stillness, as it were. The continuum has ceased a lot of its nervous, almost fidgeting, dancing activity. Its rhythmic moment has stilled for a while. And then suddenly the cantus bursts in for a moment, but that stillness remains in the background. lovely moment and again as I said a shame to stop it like that but what happens next I think is very interesting for that point of view because that little outburst on the counter sounds almost like an interjection or interruption from another dimension from another world but that interjection happens again and again more frequently and then it starts off on its own as a kind of wild dance another wild dance based on a sort of an ostinato a repeated figure which is at first sporadic then coming together in continuous movement even though you'll notice that the repetitions and rhythmically are not exact the meter keeps shifting backwards and forwards, not quite regular. Also noticeable, I think, in this passage is the way that the cantos is kind of urged on, in a way, by the bassoon who's underneath and making his kind of little dotted comments, pushing the music forward underneath. But even though in some ways it's clear where one section begins and another section ends, again, it seems to me there are something beautifully engineered transitions going on. At the same time, this is a texture that seems to be alive on so many levels at once, and so many interesting interreactions going on between the various levels in the texture. Thank <laughs> you. 
Lovely comment from the bassoon at the end there. The thing to point out about that repetition, that in each repetition of that ostinato, if you call it, or little moments that are going round, it's never the same. Every time it repeats, it has an element in it that is different. Either something is added or something is dropped or something slightly changes. And I also like to think of it as being like sitting in a car with the engine on and not going forward. And then the bassoon, as it were, pushes the accelerator and then the, the music moves away. Hmm. So it's actually something that's spinning, if you like, rather than going in a direction. I know what you mean, because a sense of physical movement of some kind is, is often very important in new music. It, yeah. it always has some kind of momentum, even when it's very, very slow. One thing that often affects me, and I don't know whether this makes any sense to you, but because of the, the fact that those ostinatos, those repetitions, are never quite the same shape twice, I end up feeling almost, I'm sort of physically willing them on in the audience, uh, you know, sort of listening to it. Does that make sense to you? Anything that's repeated in the music, if you repeat something three times, for instance, how do you get out of it? What mm. justifies the movement from that moment into what it's going to make? So in one sense, the music is still, and at the same time, there's an element in it which is organic and is then released at the end. It's like having a dog that's wanting to get off the lease, and the dog is full of movement, but it's not going anywhere. You're holding it. And then you, let the, you take it off the lease and off it goes. Yeah. Yes, well, that makes a lot of sense to me, yeah. certainly. Just to go back to the beginning of the piece, we've got an example of this kind of continual movement and also the, the flute, as it were, signalling the beginning of the drama, as indicated in the poem. This is how the piece begins. First of all, the continuum sets this kind of ostinato emotive. Again, not quite the same each time. And on top of it, the flute, as it were, calling us to the drama, as in the poem. Pause for a moment and then the process begins again. I'm very much still straining on the leash. But something else I'd like to draw your attention to there, which is this obsessive little two-note figure that the two violins and the viola are playing, a D and an F. Again, you'll hear, if we'll just hear the continuum on its own, you'll hear how this figure repeats, but not quite exactly the same each time. This is a very important element in the music, particularly this interval of D to F, this rising third. And if we just play the end of the piece, you'll hear how that DF figure emerges gradually from the sound of this huge cathartic climax with the trumpet rising to an absolutely ethereal high F sharp. You gradually hear, first of all, figures in the viola and the cello is lower down. And the viola always starts his figure with a D and an F. And then gradually, as the sounds begin to die down and come to stillness, the viola is left on its own, just playing that same D-F that we heard at the beginning of the piece. This is how it works. (laughs) 
So, in my beginning is my end. The very first sound you hear almost is also the very last sound you hear, almost. Now, there is one little secret, Harry, that you have vouchsafed to reveal to us at this point, which rather yes, astonished yeah. me. Well, it's in relevance to the fact that you, you removed the last line of Robert Graves' poem, so that instead of referring to the role of the audience, it ends with the couplet, we mount the stage as though at random, boldly ring down the curtain, then dance out our love. And I think the word love has got an interesting connection with what the viola was playing just before the end. Isn't that oh, yeah. right? It, it's, um, it's a quote from a song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. I don't know whether you know it. Yeah. I wonder if our viola player would mind just playing that, that line again well, so we can hear it. It's only a whisper. It's only a whisper. But it made sense to me when you said it. Okay. Just, just there, just yeah. a hint, yes. Yeah, you have to be of a certain age. There's <laughs> <laughs> something else about looking at what you, you didn't quote from Graves' poem, is a lot of it is about the audience and being in the audience. Yeah. Is that because, again, you want to bring us closer to this sense of what's actually going well, it's on? Well, something to see, yeah. Yes. Harrison yeah. Bertwistle, thank you so much for talking to us about your music. It's been fascinating for me. It always is to talk to a composer about whose music I admire so much. Thank you. <laughs>